weight was a huge thing to to learn about just to, the really important things you need and the bare minimums you need. Do you want luxury or do you want <laughs> do you want to just make it work and go get your animal and get yeah. off the mountain? So yeah, I mean it was it was really a, a great time to figure out those things and like like I said What's a pack? Yeah. Well, only thing we pack in Wisconsin is how many snacks we can put in a bag <laughs> to go sit in a spot all day long. Yep. You know, if, if you got enough snacks, you'll make it. So that's that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? You won't shoot anything, but you'll make it because you'll have so many wrappers on the ground. But it, I don't uh, have good snack management when uh, I'm in tree stands. Like, I'm like 20 minutes in. I'm like, these are these are my last fruit snacks. Hmm, remember those two sandwiches you packed for lunch? Yeah, they're gone by seven. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. What are amps, watts, and volts? What about them? Well, what what are they? I mean, we throw the stuff around like everybody's supposed to know, <laughs> and it's not like I got sat down at some point and was like, "Hey, when you see a forty watts on a light bulb, this is what that means." It's like, well, a sixty watt light bulb fits in the same thing, and it seems to work. Like, am I getting lied to? I don't know. Yep. Nope. Just output. Hey, you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> Jumps right on him for being an electrician. <laughs> Oh, God. No, tell me how it works. Voltage is what drives your electricity. Amperage is the part that kills you. You know, one and a half volts could kill a person versus, you know, you got 100,000 volts running through power lines. You know, okay. mega trans- transport lines. And, you know, that's just... Uh, and one and a half volts can kill you. Yeah. One and a half volts can kill you if you can get perfect continuity through a person. Down to an amp and a half of flow can stop a heart. It shows that's why we put GFIs, you know, in bathrooms and shit, because that trips at point zero five amps to protect everybody. Because, gotcha. you know, point three, point three could kill a person if gotcha. they have a weak heart. Okay. So what what is something that has 1.5 volts that... It's a regular AA battery. A AA battery. Mm-hmm. So a AA battery, you know, we don't think of as a very powerful thing, although, you know, they're running... The world, basically, uh, that could kill you if you had a weak heart and you had perfect continuity. Mm-hmm. Pricking fingers to get the, into the bloodstream, your your blood has resistance to it. So I mean, but you could still have the potential there. Wow, to cause damage. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. How? What's the most? Uh, What's the most amperage that's ever flowed through your system? Oh, that's hard to say because <laughs> the worst days are when you're sweaty, so you got all that sweat on you, yeah. and then if you get from one hand to the other, so it'll go through your chest, it it knocks you back. It makes it definitely isn't just a light hum; it's a snap, and you, <laughs> you kind of have a snap reaction. Every muscle goes, and you just yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, I I think it's fascinating stuff when. We're going through this house build. There's a lot of stuff that I was like, I can do this. Like, I can figure this out. Framing, yeah, I can figure that out. Trusses, uh, especially for a hip roof like this, mm -mm. that's not a level of geometry that I could ever become competent at. Sure. Plumbing, like, maybe with enough time and somebody that was really patient, like, general concept like all goes downhill i think i might be able to get that the electrical stuff dude no i don't think i'm smart enough to ever be able to do it and we're so dependent upon electricity in society we just do not spend enough time thanking electricians there you go <laughs> nice <laughs> thank you for your service plug dude, <laughs> it's the truth man oh, funny like who's ever come up and been like hey man Thanks for being an electrician. I sure enjoy electricity. Yeah, it is nice to have it. Yeah. <laughs> People don't realize, you know, in, in today's society, everybody's just, it's always going to be there. Yeah. As soon as you get these great rolling blackouts will be a thing everywhere nationwide versus just certain parts of the country. 
because the grid can't handle, especially with all these electric vehicles that everybody wants to have. I wanted to ask you about that. That's a segue. (laughs) I've been seeing some stuff about how much energy is going to be required if if EVs become more popular, especially EV trucks. Do you have a take on that at all? Charging of a truck, just say you went 100 miles in a day, for that charger to run for, you know, just say everybody gets home at 8 o'clock and yep. everybody plugs in at 8. You're going to have, it'd be just like everybody plugging in their electric, you know, clothes dryer and everybody just lets them run for four hours to fast charge those trucks just in terms of usage okay so like imagine that you know it's and then on top of your cooling load everybody's got the air conditioner running which is you know a very significant load in the terms of summer you know it's just because everybody's going to get home at that time they're going to drop their air conditioning down four degrees or whatever because they're like oh it's fucking hot in here i don't want to yeah i I don't want to deal with it but it's just that much more of a load you know for the whole if everybody did it Obviously, it all adds up. So gotcha. So the grid you, can't handle it. The the grid cannot handle it right I mean, now. We need to make it's just more the power. The things you've heard, I've heard through uh, linemen people. It's yeah. like, like even Texas is great thing with that ice storm last year. Their whole infrastructure is so old, and they just, I mean, that's kind of how they all operate. They just try and get by. You know, if we can maintain it as little as possible, that's how you make the most money. But obviously, you have to repair everything, keep it going. And their system was so not ready for a major thing like that. Obviously, they're not designed for ice loads like us in the north or whatever, but it's pretty crazy how much the things that get by gotcha. need to get by. Yeah. You know, it's like they're not going to shut down a whole town to to upgrade a town. Yep. You know, they're just going to make it work until mass failure. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> uh, what about... Bombs and movies causes you the most heartburn. I don't even know. <laughs> I'm sure you're the same way when you watch stuff. My wife will catch me. I'll be like, that's not real. And then she's like, yeah, it's a movie. And I'm like, why am I getting worked up? And I'm sure you're the same way. You sit there and you're watching it and you're like, that's not even close how that goes. And yeah. you're like, just shut up. Just yeah. be quiet. And you're saying you just watch John Wick 4 and you're probably watching all that stuff go down. And you're like, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy the moment with everybody in the room. I don't need to say anything dumb. So. Yeah. It's just one of those things that you see it, it happens, whatever, move on. <laughs> Dude, I'll I'll catch myself sometimes like on a goofy like science fiction movie like Avatar or something. Like I'll see some kind of sloppy reload and be like, <laughs> wrong, wrong, you know? <laughs> Tap rack bang, buddy. What are you doing? <laughs> like that's not how that works. Meanwhile, like this is about, you know, people in outer space mining you know, for an yes. element that doesn't exist. <laughs> Different planet. It's like, okay, all right, back it off. Um, okay, let me let me rephrase that. What is a movie about uh, explosive ordnance disposal yeah. or, or that includes that that you feel like got it right or even just a scene from a movie? Uh, honestly, they exaggerate it so much that I can't think of one where they got it right. Uh, we're talking Hurt Locker. That's a rough one to watch. Yeah. Everybody in our career feels like, what? And then we move on to like this Godzilla movie where the EOD tech has been like traveling and he suddenly gets his uniform and he's an EOD tech again and then he gets thrown off a bridge and then he gets thrown in mud and then they pick him up and then now he's disarming a nuclear bomb on the side of the shore. You know what I mean? Like everything is just so drastic. I don't know. The only things I can think of is the Hurt Locker. Yes, at that time, the people that made my career feel what it is going through what they did in Iraq they built it up, but they needed to get a spotlight on that stuff to show. But there are things in there that, yes, you know, the battery running the lines and everything like that and him being out there in the bomb suit. Yes, those things happen and those things are true. But like him picking up one five fives that are daisy chained together and just have you ever picked up a one five five? You know, yeah, what I mean? they're heavy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And he's got eight of them on a chain or something. Yeah. yeah. Come on. Come on. No, <laughs> I think one of the more accurate ones I've seen and I'm trying to remember this. I might be making it up, but uh, in Generation Kill, mm-hmm. I think there's there's a scene where they find a bunch of 155s that are all wired up. And 155s, folks, are uh, an artillery shell, mm-hmm. um, like the actual projectile. You know, so, some of the early IEDs, and, and probably some, some that are still being used, you know, they'd like wrap deck cord around that and then have some type of trigger mechanism. I'm not going to get into details because I don't want somebody to make one, <laughs> but... Uh, 
bottom line is this is something that happened. And I think there's a scene in that where there's just like, they found one there's just a bunch of Marines like standing there smoking cigarettes, looking at it and making jokes. That's about as accurate as anything that I've seen. That or shooting it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> or yeah, just, we threw a couple rounds into her, see if she did anything. <laughs> yeah. Or just waiting for like 30 hours for, you know, somebody to show up. Oh, to sorry. Work on it. Sorry. Oh, you guys have stuff going on, man. Do I, we though? Most of the time we're watching movies. <laughs> uh, and when James bring up the, the one five fives, it's crazy because uh, being over in the Middle East, it's kind of crazy to see UXOs all over the place. Because what happens is Artie will be firing. What what's UXO? And sorry, you know, yeah. Just just to frame it, like there's like 120 countries that download this show every yeah. week. Um, so just just try to talk talk about stuff in a way that everybody can understand it if you can. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry. No, you're good. Uh, an unexploded ordinance is what it's it's referencing, and and it can go anything from a hand grenade to a nuclear weapon. We'll say, but. Most of the time they call us up and uh, over in the Middle East, after all the wars have gone through, I mean, James being in Afghanistan, me being in Syria, there's remnants of all these rounds because not everything goes off when it hits the ground. You know, the fuse might get ripped off in flight. Somebody might forget to put a fuse on it and then it's just a round that's out there with nothing in it. So when he was talking about stuff getting made, it's because they'd find it. So just traveling on these roads and being out there, you'd see all this stuff just on the side of the road. And, you know, either it'd be a device or it would just be something sitting there. So in that spot, it's just crazy to know that all the stuff that's getting built might even be U.S. made. So 155s over there, were, some of them were U.S. made, and that's just the stuff that goes on, I right. guess. But, yeah, it's 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 crazy to know and think about that stuff. And when we mention it now and then going back to the movie The Hurt Locker, those were probably all U.S. rounds, Yeah, you know, that dud it out. It always was especially psychologically damaging when we found improvised explosive devices ieds that had components that came from u.s troops right so i would see stuff that like the trigger was made out of a u.s issued foam flip-flop and they would have wires stacked in there so that when you drove over the top of it it would crush the foam connect those wires and then we've got amps watts volts going all over the place (laughs) that's right yeah uh and then you know, while power in that region of Afghanistan was extremely hard to come by, a lot of troops, when they, you know, got done with their batteries for their night vision or whatever, they just throw it out, right? Well, you get enough of those and hook them up together and you can get a pretty good amount of power out of them. So, you know, when you find like scraps of trash that could have been you know, better disposed of that were used, you know, to, to kill or damage you in your equipment. It's like, man, that, that was especially psychologically damaging. That and being in my head, a third world country. I don't know if that's correct to say. And then we come across guys that, you know, certain people would wrap up and then we have them and we're processing them and they have stuff on them that looks like it was made in like a factory in the u.s right like we're talking shrink wrapped wires with heat guns you know what i mean like they made it look wow. like these devices you're like was this manufactured and it's coming from a different country it's just getting shipped in and now these guys are getting caught with it. and you're like what am i looking at right now like how it we're in the middle of a dust area with you know mud huts and they're building things like that so it's it's just crazy because I, in my head, like I, I couldn't grasp it at first. I'm like, how are they doing this? How is this being made? And then, like you said, the the flip flops with wires, but that foam it just keeps it separated, and it's all about the, the the maker, right? Whatever he wants to use, whatever he can find, he uses the foam from a, a USO slipper that they shipped us or something, and then suddenly that's using it as a, a cushion. So when it pushes together, it connects. It's just yeah, it it blows my mind. And then to have to like understand how it works and then make a move on it is just crazy too. I don't know. It's the things you've seen, the things that have been seen, the things that I've been debriefed on. It's just crazy to know that that stuff's going on. And like I said, to see those devices that are just made and it looks like they were made in a factory. It's just, right. It blows my mind. <laughs> no, it is. It's so wild. I remember taking like a an IED class uh, and I can't remember exactly where it was. It might have been in Palms. It might have been somewhere else. But mm-hmm. it was it was specifically for like, hey, this is what we're currently seeing in in helmet province where you're going you know we're going to be there in a couple months and i came out of that class like feeling really confident like oh like now i know exactly what to look for like anytime i see 
like trash on the side of the road or rocks stacked up on top of each other, then, uh, you know, that's the cue that there's going to be an IED in the road. <laughs> I've got this. As it turns out, get to a third world country, there's freaking trash everywhere. everywhere. And stacking one rock on top of another rock is like... How they mark their driveway. Everything. <laughs> yep. Everything. It's just what people do for, like... A hobby. So you look down this road and it's like nothing but rock stacks and trash and like, oh, we're all going to die. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite is uh, I had to go through some training at Fort Bliss and the same kind of stuff you're talking about. They train you before you go to the AO yeah. or area of operation. And you're sitting there and they're basically going, well, stacked rock. Maybe there's a little bit of dirt in the road that looks like a bump. One plus one equals IED. Right. And that was the Army's call. One plus one equals IED. And that's how they trained everybody. Yeah, you came out of those classes thinking, yeah, I got a good grasp. Yeah. And then you get there, lumps in the road, yeah. rock stack, trash everywhere, dead carcasses everywhere, right. sheep hides thrown all over the, you know what I mean? Like, you, you could never decipher the thing. Yeah. And the, they're also changing all the time, right? They're getting yeah. better at it. They're getting smarter. Drones. And- Drones, drones, drones. Dude, drones are a big part of the game now. Yeah. And that, like, I was right at the beginning of that. So the drones that we had to operate with had a two-stroke gas engine. <laughs> and they were, like, the size and shape of a trash can. You could hear them from a 1,000 miles yeah. away. They were really unreliable. They fell out of the sky just about every time we flew them. I don't know how many successful landings we ever had. <laughs> and when they would fall out of the sky very often it would be in a place where we did not want to go. That's why we're flying a drone over there. But now we've got to go recover it. When I got back, that was the first time I saw civilian drones that like you could just buy off Amazon and you could fly them with your phone. It was super easy. I was like, Oh, like this is moving fast, fast. Cause in the time it took to get something through the, the mill gov contract cycle, the civilian market had, leapfrogged that so far as like oh this is this is unstoppable Mm -hmm. like this is a cat that's like so far out of the bag it's (laughs) over the horizon by now so you know what's going on with drones and bombs today i I think a lot of people have sort of seen that in the russo-ukrainian war but yeah what's your two cents on it i mean we're not involved as the u.s but i know a lot of people that have been there Mm -hmm. especially for my career field there's some there's some pretty good individuals, very smart that have, uh, gotten out of their service time and volunteered to go over there. And being a father, I I give him a lot of credit, good kid. Um, but he went over and the stuff that's going on is you could have a pop can size hole for a stove to save, stay warm. And you're watching drone footage now of, and this is all open source. You can watch this anywhere. So it's not classified or anything. I'm not telling you guys secrets. Um, but you can watch them pop, pop can size hole of a little stove coming out and they can fit a hand grenade down there and hit everybody that's trying to warm up in that little bunker. And you can watch all this stuff, open source Ukrainian stuff, but they're flying over. They have thermals. You know what I mean? Like thermals on these things, they're flying around there and you're watching these impacts. And yes, it's trench warfare over there, but throw this where he's flying at over a thousand feet, maybe with this drone. And they don't even know they're getting dropped on. And you can watch it Ukrainian side and Russian side. And these things that go on, you're like, Okay, trench warfare, that sucks. You know, you're firing down the line, you're shooting, you know, AT4s and doing all this stuff. I would never think to look up. I'm sorry. Maybe artillery or you're seeing jets fly over, but overall, I'm not thinking about a drone hovering at a thousand feet. Tough to see. (laughs) Exactly. Very tough to see. And you can't hear these ones. You got gunfire all around you, and then you're just getting hit by stuff that as soon as it hits the ground, it goes off. And I don't know, to fit something down a pop can lid to have that size or like that kind of accuracy, just it's unsettling and now with the stuff that's going on in israel they're already releasing drone footage of that right and they're dropping on like you know civilian cars in line trying to fly away and stuff like that so it's it's weird to watch and then they film it all and put it up as propaganda so it does get in people's heads just from that aspect too yeah yeah drones are a big one and then i'd have to say a lot of places don't know how to handle drones like ah it's just a little drone it's still going to take people out but like it's not the biggest topic that's talked about yeah. You know, and now we've been talking about IEDs and that kind of stuff. I think it's, it's a step back now from everybody's perspective, taking a step back from that kind of war, that kind of mentality. Yeah, it's always going to be there, but now it's we got to relearn the basics and then move forward with new drone experience, along with okay, well, 
look what's happening in Ukraine. And they're getting hammered with scatterable munitions, bombs, rounds. All this stuff is everywhere. And some of it or most of it didn't go off uh, the right. dud rate for Russian you know, munitions. But now it's just sitting there. So what happens? Oh, more UXOs. So it's just it's just this whirlwind of new experiences and new times. So We had uh, uh, one of the tanks... In, uh, in one of my sister platoons, ran over something in 29 Palms, California, Mojave Viper, mm-hmm. and blew the track off the tank. And it was not in a bombing range. Uh, so who knows? Like, that could have been yep. World War II munitions that had finally gotten enough rainfalls over the top yep. of it to get it exposed. And, uh, yeah, it exploded and blew the track off the tank. <laughs> so, like, we're getting, like, extra real-world IED yeah. training Practice you know, makes perfect. <laughs> when we're in freaking California. But, yeah. No, Blake, uh, he works on uh, one of the bases back home. And, I mean, I've been up. You've been working your normal gigs, rewiring the buildings from the Afghan refugee situation and fixing those things. But I'll show up because I'll get ordinance calls there. Because stuff will wash out of the, the valleys and all that kind of stuff during the, the spring. Like, mm. it'll, you know, the frost will kick yeah. it up and everything. So I'm up there. Hey, I'm up there. And he'll be working. I'll come visit him and stuff like that. But... It's all over the dang place, and you don't know where they were firing back in World War II when they're doing all these practice rounds, and it pops up, like you just said. Mm. It could have been from World War II that your tank rolled over, and there it is. Welcome yeah. home. <laughs> we so, have UXO training yeah. just for just for working on a job site. Sure, I bet. And we got these all these protocols. You, there, there's no faster way to shut a job site down for about six to eight weeks to say that you found a UXO yeah. while you're digging, you know, <laughs> an area. It's yeah. just insane. I was in a training area in the Carolinas one time that they had all these trees painted and they would paint any tree that they found this specific type of endangered woodpecker in. And then if anybody saw a woodpecker, then we're supposed to get a biologist out there to identify it, shut training down. And they briefed us this during training. I didn't catch the like, I didn't catch the hint of hey, if you see this, keep that shit to yourself, right? <laughs> but they had to say it. They said it, and I took it literally. So I was like woodpecker hunting the whole time we are out there, and I found <laughs> one, and I grabbed hold of the radio, and I was like, woohoo, I found one. And I got a pretty stern talking to about that. <laughs> Twelve hours later, yeah, I got talked to. <laughs> shut it down. They're like, look, I know we said call it out, but, you know, <laughs> next time maybe maybe you didn't see a woodpecker yeah yeah, yeah. it'll move it'll be fine <laughs> how long have you guys known each other oh man go ahead blake i mean grade school yeah i mean we, we didn't grow up in the same town but where we were a conglomerated school three towns worth and mm. he was one town over and i was the other one and played sports together and yeah. school together and same same class and all that stuff so yeah i'd say forever damn near yeah pretty so much. where's that Gale Electric Tremplo is where we went to school. That was their conglomerate, what it was called. Yeah, if you look at Wisconsin, it's on the uh, Mississippi. But if you look for La Crosse, one of the bigger cities, we're okay. north of there. Yep. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, what do people get wrong about Wisconsin? <laughs> You're not a state that gets talked about a lot. Yeah. Everybody always asks, where's the, where's the brat and sauerkraut? I mean, that's that's yeah. really it. Oh, you guys have cheese? Yeah, I got cheese in my fucking pocket. You want some? <laughs> I, I don't understand what uh, you know what it's all about and the way we talk, and it's just some guys' accents are worse than others. So it's the way it goes. Pretty yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it's right. A good accent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could be from Missouri. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's not a good accent. <laughs> <laughs> Parts of Missouri are, but there's like a. Boot Heel, Missouri. Have you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. There's an accent that comes from part of Missouri that makes makes me not want to hear anymore. <laughs> so, shout out to the folks from that part of Missouri. <laughs> uh, probably get some get some hate mail over that comment. It's all right. That's all right. <laughs> They're in Missouri. They're far away. <laughs> so, you guys, uh, tell tell me what you're out here doing. All right. So, when I was uh, overseas, I was in Qatar. You posted a kind of learn to hunt and i've grown up in wisconsin just doing normal whitetail hunts and blake's taken me out a couple times we've done uh, coyote hunting along with like turkey and stuff uh squirrel hunting you know just the fun little things but it's a different lifestyle out west and 
watching things and me getting more intrigued uh, about wanting to go out west, I was like, I have no effing clue what to even think about or how to do this. So you posted that uh, last year. I think it was like February or something like that. You posted it. Um, I hit you up and I couldn't make it obviously last year. And you kind of worked with me and you're like, yeah, well, let's go next year, October. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hell yeah. So I needed to, I think it made sense. Like, yeah, I might know some stuff. I might know how to do this, this and that, but I needed a James Nash breakdown of how to hunt out West. And, uh, you know, you know, fortunately we were able to come out, we got out here and you kind of started breaking everything down from how to pack in, how to get to your campsite, how to set up, how to get ready, how to go out, how to glass, how to move. And then when opening day came yesterday, we were successful right off the bat and it felt good. And then now we've just been breaking down and uh, cutting up, doing the things that we can. But I needed that. I needed that because I need a baseline. I have a baseline in Wisconsin. I don't have a baseline out west. And I yeah. just don't want to get caught where here I've killed this, you know, big elk or whatever. And I'm totally effed because I don't know what to do or how to do it. So once again, I need a baseline. So to fall back on something to fall back onto. And then you brought some interesting folks out to come talk to us and teach us about, you know, mule deer and whitetail and all this kind of stuff and talk us through how the, the it's different from where we hunt. It's still the same in a way, but it's different and how to break that kind of stuff down. And I needed that me personally. I don't know if Blake did. No, we both needed it (laughs) being from the Midwest where everybody has a 40, if you're lucky, you know, people are hard up for hunting permissions and then everybody's bombing out in the public land. And like you, you, nobody, hardly nobody in the Midwest sees animals in their natural day-to-day process, right? We see them pushed around, kicked around because there's so many people in the woods. So it's, and we just wanted to get the grasp on, you know, Glassing was huge, you know, what to look for, tips and tricks, and it's, you know, we don't, we could, we have an opportunity to glass, but you're just going to look at the neighbor's field that's only, you know, 800 yards long, and it's like all the deer from every, you know, the whole county lives in this one field because he's got certain food that time of year, but it's nice to break it down and kind of get a grasp for all the, the western aspects of hunting. Yeah, so. yeah, and it like you teaching us how the valley breathes. You know, it warms up during the day, it goes up. At night, she goes down. Like, for wind calls and making those judgment calls, I would have never have even known. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> and, the, and the great spider migration. <laughs> All spiders from Oregon are going to Wisconsin. They will be there very soon. <laughs> when it's warm. That way they fly the right way. That's right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun thing. You know, I've been so excited about about this school and so excited to get you guys out here. And, you know, we've been talking about it for a long time. But my concept is really antithetical to what every other outfitter wants. Like, outfitters really make their living off of repeat clients mm-hmm. and people that come back year after year, every other year. And my whole concept with this was I want you to never need a guide again. Uh, so when you came out, you know, you had a lot of your own kit. I'd recommended a gear list, but I also had all all my stuff that I was, you know, happy to fill in for you guys to try out to see what works for you. Cause so much of it is personal preference. And there's a lot of people out there that are just cramming brands (laughs) down your throat all the time. And like, you've got to use this, you've got to use that. Like I, you know, trust my life to this Benjamin air rifle. (laughs) Shut up. So I, I wanted you to be able to to bounce around and, and find the stuff that worked. But, you know, you guys showed up. You loaded up with freeze-dried and a bunch of snacks and water. And and, and we we lined out your packs and, you know, talked about everything that you would need for a backcountry hunt. You know, strapped it all to your packs. And then you guys took off. And, you know, where you camped, we could drive to. But... You elected to go the hard way <laughs> and, you know, you, you climbed up a pretty steep cliff, went through some rim sections, got up on top, picked out your camp spot, and then, you know, we got everything set up there for you. And then you guys glassed your guts out. You know, you guys probably <laughs> put 12 or 15 hours in, behind the glass before the season started. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And like you start to learn these animals in that amount of time and you start to learn their routes and memorize trees and like find specific groups within groups and how they kind (laughs) of operate. And like, you know, they left here in the evening, but they came back here in the morning and you can kind of put together the picture. And then, you know, since we did all that work on the front end, it changes things on opening day. But we also had a really wonderful mule deer lesson from Chad Dotson, who's like a legendary mule deer guy. Uh, had some whitetail talks about how whitetail act in different parts of the country from Kevin Harlander, who's hunted whitetails all over the country. He's a fellow Midwesterner, so I knew you guys <laughs> speak right. the same language. Yeah, hit home, yeah. Again, I'm amazed that we made it through that without talking about walleye, but we did it. <laughs> and uh, then we spent five hours on the shooting range, too, and got to go through a bunch of different scenarios. Had either of you ever shot off tripods before? I have not. Minimally. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And then suppressors. <laughs> yeah. Sold me on those very yeah. much so. Uh, I'd have to say the shooting was pretty fun, but it also, there's so much that goes into it that what you showed us and what we used made it, made me settle down. Yeah. I thought I was going to be having to do those dope cards and figure out a lot of things, but with you showing us what you did and doing what we did, you made it made me less restless we'll say yeah i was pretty worried about having to make those kind of judgment calls in a in a you know a mountainous environment and thing like that but man our range finders today are so smart yes, yes. if you just they're like bread machines <laughs> right like making bread all on your own is kind of hard to do it's hard to get a good product with that but if you have a bread machine and you weigh everything correctly and you add all the right ingredients you get good bread every single time. Yep. And yep. it's really like that with these rangefinders. So if you put in all the correct inputs for your muzzle velocity and everything about your bullet and everything about your gun, which is easy to find out, put all that stuff in there, man, it's going to do the rest for you. Like you don't have to be, you don't have to be a smart man. <laughs> you got to hit the button and then... And then learning how to use reticles. Uh, I don't yeah. think either of you guys had shot with reticles that much. Nope. Yeah. Du- duplex for life. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> hundred yards or less. Yeah. You know, at home. And and you don't you don't need it back home, right? Right. You don't need it. But as it turned out, we didn't need it here either. You mm-hmm. know, we took a I think a hundred and ninety eight yard shot, some somewhere in there. Somewhere like that. You you guys know better than I did. <laughs> yeah. At that but point. You, you you ended up shooting off of your tripod. Yep. Which, uh yep. So that training turned out to be really applicable. Definitely. If we'd had a bipod only, we'd have been hosed. Yes. Could could not have taken that shot with a bipod. Might have been on your shoulder or something. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, it it trained me well, but then also you had me push out right away, right off the bat to 700. That's the farthest I've ever shot. Yeah. So to me, I'm like, how did I just hit that without even, all we did was zero. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then you're like... Do this, click, 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 and then boom, we're right on target. So And you ten ringed it at seven hundred yards. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, overall I was just amazed at that aspect and I was like I was kind of confused in a way because I was like, That's it? Yeah. You know? I don't know. It just drew me back a little. So then, you know, we, we got your buck and I had a buck tag too, and because we had the the silencer on there, those other deer didn't know what was going yep. on. You very graciously uh offered to to let let me shoot a, a buck following you up there. So we ended up with two bucks right on the ground, you know, 15 yards apart. Fantastic. That really gave us double the opportunity to go through the next phase, which was learning how to field dress. Yeah. And it's something that both of you guys have done in the past. Everyone has a little bit different style of field dressing mm-hmm. and different situations are going to call for different styles as well. What do you feel like was the biggest difference between the way that I was doing it and the way that you guys have done it in the past? Complete opposite. You started at the top. You know what I mean? And we always start at the bottom, work our way up. As and, far as cutting with the grain yep, of the hair. Cutting with the hair. And uh God, what was the tool? <laughs> Zipper? Yep. Yeah. That was the slickest thing I think I have ever after I got the hang of it, understanding how to use it, but after understanding all that, that was slick. But then moving your way through, uh also a key point that I didn't even know about is you need to have the, uh, to show the sex on mm-hmm. the carcass. I didn't know you need to do that out here. D- different states are different yeah. with that, yep. but uh, proof of sex attached um, while you're transporting the animal before it's processed. Yeah. Uh, and that just, you know, keeps people honest, right? You don't want mm-hmm. somebody that 
you know, shoots a, a cow elk and then shoots a bull elk and then, you know, is like transporting the bull's head with the cow yeah. meat and like, you know, there's been shady stuff that's happened in the past and that's what they're just trying to prevent. So. But that's for our future of going out West. I need to know that, you know what I mean? Yeah. So right off the bat, you're already hitting those wickets to me though. Like I said, it's complete opposite. And then showing us how to, uh, gingerly cut around the butt and make it so you don't have to break that pelvis in the field though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I've grown up where you, everybody's got a bone saw and they just cut right through it yeah. to this. You just, nobody's going to save the butthole meat, as you said, yeah. and you just cut her out <laughs> and then flop it out and then everything falls right into place. But that was my take. What about you, Blake? Yep. No, no asshole meat survived. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if you're from Bozeman, you might want to save that. But <laughs> everybody else is probably going to take a pass on the rectum. Um, so then we transported back here to the shop slash studio and then breaking the animal down. Um, there's lots of, lots of little tips and tricks in there that get you more efficient. All yeah. The time. You definitely, uh, hit a lot of things that, like I said in the past, like normally in the environment that where I'm butchering stuff, I'm, everybody's kind of ornery, you know, they are all, it's the end of the, the night and either they want to get back out hunting or they're, you're not doing it right. Here, give it to me. I'll do it. Mm. So here you broke things down and you're more patient. So there's a lot more learning for me, but then also the, the cuts we're making to get them in the game bags. I've never had to do game bags before. And then the little secrets of, yeah, cut this piece off trachea throw it over here so the bees aren't bothering you i'm like right. what do you mean bees meat-eating hornets or you yeah. know yellow jacks or whatever i'm like i don't have that <laughs> yeah i don't have that problem so from now on i know throw something away so the bees get their own and then you can just keep working so little stuff like that that i i didn't even you know what i mean can't comprehend because i'm not from this area so yeah blake anything stand out to you on the breakdown phase nope i mean it it it, it everything did it was it was really awesome to see uh proficiency with a knife and then the amazing finding of joint sockets pops you know these up well, slip this one ligament and the whole thing falls off right you know it's just the it's hours on the knife is the your best friend and that gives you your speed you know obviously it's really amazing to watch you do your thing you know and guide us and tell us what to do on our animal so it was it was great yeah every part of it i love cutting meat man mm -hmm. <laughs> like more and more, like, that's that's the part of it that I enjoy the best. Once you threw your legit holster for your <laughs> knives and your, and your stuff, I'm just like, oh, yeah, he's he means business. We yeah. better just, just give him some air, let him do his thing for a little bit, and we'll With just keep... With the chain, the yeah. chain belt? Well, you're that, like, oh, God, is this well, a movie? What, yeah, a jack chain belt. I'm like, what in the world's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Straight out of saw. <laughs> so you use a chain because it's easy to clean. Sure. Yeah. Makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. So if you use leather or nylon or something, then everything sticks to it. But stainless steel chain just cleans off in seconds. Mm -hmm. But if but. you're out in the backwoods of Oregon and you throw that on, I don't know if I need to run or help. So <laughs> when that happens. How well do I know this yeah. guy? Oh, my God. That's uh, funny. Yeah. And then have you roll out a big piece of plastic on the shop floor exactly. like Dexter. Like, it'll be fine. Yeah, you it'll guys are fine. fine. <laughs> Why are you shutting the lights off, James? <laughs> <laughs> That's weird music. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, yeah, so that was yesterday. Uh, everything hung out in the Argali bags and cooled all night long. And then uh, today we started doing the cut and wrap. So this is sort of the, well, I wouldn't say the final phase, but close to the final phase of the school is cut and wrap right now we have everything broke down so everything that we're going to grind is in a tote in the freezer right now and it's cooling off i've got all of my uh components for the meat grinder in the freezer which really helps keep everything cold and mm -hmm. and uh you know it just makes it a, a better process for making sure that meat gets cut instead of smushed we have everything else wrapped with some really lovely artwork, some custom artwork oh, from uh, from Blake on there. <laughs> I love that, man. Sh Shank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Shanks for your service. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and uh, man, that that's fun. Like there's there's still lots of little things that you can learn along the way for like being more efficient, being safer, learning how these muscle groups work. Like the hindquarter can appear really intimidating uh but as soon as you realize that there's only like five parts to yeah. it 
and that you can actually feel them. You were breaking it with your hands. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that was awesome. Find the natural seam <laughs> exactly. in, the, in the, in the muscle groups. Yeah. And so. then you just move on. Yeah. 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 And just knowing that like, there's, there's just a few names for this it's common language yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, learning how to rap and ways, ways to do that. But yeah, we're going to go grind the rest of this. Uh, so you'll have your burger product and you know, the truly the, the final phase of the school I won't be there for, but that's transporting your meat home. Yeah. And you know, I'll, sh- I'll show you the ways that I do that and you guys will be on your way, but uh, legitimately, and I'm, I hope that you'll give me a really honest answer. Do you feel like you could come back to a Western state and conduct a backcountry hunt on your own and be successful at it, knowing what you've learned this week? Yes. Um, just due to the fact that a lot of my perceptions about going out West were kind of faded before we got here, Mm -hmm. I guess I I was a nervous, like I told you about like how to do this, how to do that, all this whole list of things that I was like, I don't even, then you start digging into it and you kind of scare yourself out of it, but how easy you made it and how you talk through, I think I could come out at least somewhere out West and just fire from the hip and be fine. You know what I mean? Like I have the base bare minimum packing list that you sent me. I packed that here. I know it works. I know what to do at that point. I know if I get something, how to cut it up, how to quarter it. Yes. I'll need new game bags. Uh, but moving on from there, I feel like I can do it either alone or with Blake, but I feel like it's, yes, it's helped me out a lot, but even though I knew how to do some stuff, this was still a good thing to come and do because then it still shows me another way, but then it also shows me a way that maybe if I take this way and this way and put them together, it makes it easier on, on myself. Yeah. So, yes, 100%, I could do this. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what do you think, Blake? You I'm feel like you say could pull it off? Basically, everything Shane said. So he, <laughs> he covered the whole uh, the, the, the mindset of figuring out your camp, as in, you know, how are you going to do it? How far away from wherever you're going to park are you going to go? Mm-hmm. Get your Get your pack right. Do you want to be 30 pounds? Do you want to be 60 pounds? Do you got enough food for yeah. five, seven, ten days, however long you're dreaming about staying out there, to be comfortable? But you can be uncomfortable and still do it. So weight was a huge thing to, to learn about, just to, the really important things you need and the bare minimums you need. Do you want luxury or do you want <laughs> do you want to just make it work and go get your animal and get yeah. off the mountain? So, yeah, I mean, it was it was really a, a great time to figure out those things. And like, like I said, what's a pack? Yeah. Well, only thing we pack in Wisconsin is how many snacks we can put in a bag <laughs> to go sit in a spot all day long. Yep. You know, if, if you got enough snacks, you'll make it. So that's, that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? You won't shoot anything, but you'll make it because you'll have so many wrappers on the ground. But it, I don't uh, have good snack management when uh, I'm in tree stands. Like, I'm like 20 minutes in. I'm like, these are, these are my last fruit snacks. Hmm, remember those two sandwiches you packed for lunch? Yeah. They're gone by seven. You know, I mean, totally. That's totally it. Too, so. yeah. But uh, the whole meeting all of your, your speakers coming in, yeah, it was great to yeah. listen to the, what am I looking for? Like the, the patterns okay. Okay. that you can look for, the signs you can, you know, soak in. And the thing I like today even was just um, learning your stuff on the fly. Like you'll figure it out. Like yeah. you're not going to fail. You could fail hard and it's going to hurt, but you'll you'll be able to bounce back and learn from everything you do. Right. Like it just, no, it's been a great experience. Cool. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm really glad. No, this has been, like I said, a lot of fun and something that I've really looked forward to. And yeah, you, you guys are super fun to hunt with. <laughs> and you did a, uh, a school with, uh, with Kate and Justin small. We did me and my wife. Yeah. Yep, we did that, uh, in June this year. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Was that fun? For the Wolf Academy, yep. Yeah. Over there in Cascade, Idaho, that was great. We stayed at a, a ranch outfit out there, and everybody, I mean, it was very interesting. We, My wife and I we were more interested in the, the whole, because we have wolves in Wisconsin, and eventually they're going to hopefully have a regular season versus just a sporadic every, you know, 10 years the way it seems. Yeah. But, you know, it, uh, just getting... Because, like, in Idaho and Montana, anybody, Joe Blow down the street can go buy a wolf tag. Mm-hmm. And you'll have your, what is it? I think they said there's, like, a 1% or 2% success rate or something just astronomically low. 
but you can still go put the miles in and try. Yeah. You know, it was very fun to listen to and learn from those people. That was yeah. really a good time. So, what was your biggest takeaway that you f- that you felt like I'm going to be able to implement this back home? Back home, so mountainous terrain, which is what the Kate and Justin and then Tom they all talked about learning their styles and techniques and it's like we can't correlate that strictly by what they're saying but like patterns if you can somehow find where they're staying in a dream world situation and you kind of make a move on them and if you can like we're probably more for trapping just because that's logistically how we could because the wolves will know where you are no matter what just because we're so flat relatively in the northern Wisconsin where all the most of the wolves are and but uh yeah it uh the biggest takeaway I suppose was just trying to figure out their patterns how the the pack aspect works and if a if an alpha or a, you know if something like that comes in if he sees you they're gonna be gone from that country for months at a time it's just it's pretty interesting how the whole how the wolf pack communicates with the with the young ones and if you if you miss your opportunity, you're going to screw the whole pack up, and you're not going to be able to hunt it. So you might as well just drop it for that year. Yeah, it's pretty pretty crazy what we learned. They're smart, very smart, insanely smart. You know. So. So, what have been some of the impacts of the wolf population increasing in Wisconsin? Decreased whitetail numbers. Decreased any sort of animal. Like, I remember when they first introduced. A, a pack, I guess you should say, near near where we live, mm-hmm. in a in a great big forest, and I was you talk to people, and it's like you go in that that public land forest. Now it's like a dead zone. There isn't a bird that chirps. There isn't a rabbit running by. There isn't an animal. Like you, it's just eerily quiet on a not windy day. Like it just decimates areas, and then they just move along to the next giant patch of forest to go destroy and pit pillage you know and take every animal in its sight out of, out of the picture so yeah. there was a really interesting case study that came out of a of an island in the upper pacific northwest towards alaska might have even been in alaska but it might have been a bc i'm not sure anyways uh wolves swam out to this island that hadn't previously had wolves and it had deer on it and they they're like, well, this this will be interesting to see what happens, you know. Uh, there's like 120 head of deer on it, and the wolves killed all of them, ate every single deer. And this was the interesting part because that that's what everybody thought was going to happen, right? They thought, okay, the wolves will probably kill all or most of the deer. So the wolves kill all the deer, and they think, okay, what now? You know, the, did the wolves swim back to where they came from? No, they stayed there and they moved on to a new species and they started killing sea otters. Wow. Really? Yeah. They started killing sea otters. Amazing. And, and, and shorebirds. And it, you know, it just started reducing more and more the animals that were able to use this island. And that, that is the reality of wolves that a lot of people just don't want to believe it's not, it's not this little like teeter totter, like achieving some form of, you know, make believe balance in nature where, you know, if the wolves eat too many of this, then they starve and then the wolf population goes down and the prey population comes up. It's not like that. It's, wolves it's don't more complex. Starve. They don't starve. They will eat anything. That's right. And they will destroy anything. So. And their ability to move is great so they can they can eat everything they can kill everything and then move on and they can kill everything in a new place and that that eerie quiet that you've talked about i've experienced here in places that have you know heavy wolf populations and it feels weird to go out in the woods in wilderness areas even for like days at a time and not hear a bird or a squirrel it's like you're just in a vacuum. It it's crazy. If it weren't for the you know pine needles crunching under your feet, you'd think that you'd gone deaf. Sure. Yeah. Yep, exactly. It's strange. Mm-hmm. It's strange. 
Uh, is there talk of a season getting opened? They had a spiel this summer where they were gonna they were talking about it, but that was mostly like with the Trappers Association of Wisconsin and all that stuff. Like they were trying to dream up at least a season to trap them, let alone to try and do population control. Because like the last time they opened a season, it was over within thirty six hours because it was like either thirty six or forty two hours. This is insane because they have to give you a twenty four hour notice that they're shutting the season down if you have a tag. So it's like, you know, they overshot their projected goal by, I think they damn near doubled it. You know, they wanted like 180 or 200 or something like that, and they ended up with just about 400 wolves taken. So it's just wow. because the population was so insane, and the and the wolves aren't hunted, so they if you call them, just say, and you know where the wolves are, they're going to come in. Wow. You know, they they don't have a predator. There's no pressure. There's nothing for them. They don't care. They'll... Just crazy to think about, and and you've seen a reduction in deer. I mean, see here, everybody. It's like you know, you go up to the north. It's like barren land. You know, they they issue doe tags up there still, and some uh, you know, the locals are like, that is the craziest thing to do ever because there's hardly any deer here anyway. Why would you issue doe tags in counties that don't hardly have any deer? Wow, because it's it you know, any as in like way reduced from what they've seen in the past, but just they've the hurt the packs have exploded. So, you know, that's the same similar thing that's happened with mule deer here. When you've got locals who are hunters saying, I can't believe they're still issuing tags. Right. Like you really need to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. You would think hunters are your, are almost your best biologists or, you know, for the land Mm -hmm. to, to kind of like, they know boots on the ground, biologists in an airplane. Sure. Fine. You know, but, uh, (laughs) Hunters in an airplane, well, well that's something. <laughs> well, so, sometimes state wildlife biology, they just get hamstrung in a lot of different ways. You know, they're, they're subject to political pressure. There's there's relatively slow processes that, that restrict their ability to be agile about decision-making. And you could have area biologists up there, and I don't know the situation, but you could have area biologists up there that are, you know, recommending right now, hey, we need to cut these tags, but that might be a three or a four year right. process and, and hunters can, can usually recognize the problem quickly and maybe the biologists are recognizing it quickly too, but they just are stuck in some type of bureaucracy that keeps them from be, being able to make that decision quickly enough. It's definitely something that we see out here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Montana is, is a state where they can only make decisions like every two years. So if something like springs up and it's the wrong year, it's like, well, we just can't make decisions about that right we'll now. Write, yeah. We'll write that down and we'll circle back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit nutty. But it's also good, I think, to have some things be slow in in government and policy decisions. Otherwise, you know, you know, people's emotions can kind of exactly. take over yep. and, and we could get ourselves in a, in a really reactive state that might not be good. But, man, I... I hope things work out for the best for, for your guys' deer and wildlife. And I think that hunting wolves is a, is an important and, and powerful management tool just to, to be able to reduce that population, to get them a little bit more wary, to get them away from people. And I th- think that you guys are the state that has the most uh, domestic dogs killed by wolves in the country. That's a really sad thing. I would, I would just feel horrible if one of my dogs got killed by wolves. Just ripped apart and dragged off. You know, you find a leg in your yard to be just the most traumatic thing ever. And I wasn't able to do anything about that. Like that's, that's a family member to me. Yep. Uh, That's, that's not all right. That's not okay. So hope for some changes there. Yep, definitely. But maybe I can come out to Wisconsin and take a wolf class from me once you get her all dialed in and figured <laughs> that'd out. Be, that'd be outstanding. That yeah. sounds really good. <laughs> yeah. That'd be fun. Yep. Uh, okay. Last question before we close her up. Biggest differences between hunting deer in Wisconsin and hunting, and we'll we'll keep it to white-tailed deer, and hunting white-tailed deer here in eastern Oregon. Uh, my biggest was... I actually got to, like, everybody says trail cams in Wisconsin, so you're, you're technically watching or scouting, we'll say, but uh, you kind of get on them and know their times and everything like that, watching your trail cam, easy on your phone, it'll send it to you. 
um, we were on a you know a nice ridge top watching now now we're glassing now we're seeing where they go physically instead of oh it sent me a text ah oh, they're out there you know at mm. six o'clock or seven o'clock they're pro- they're going through or like whatever. you're saying a trail camera is only one point in a whole forest yep. system it's yep. it's that one part of that you know yeah, 80 corner. acre or yep. you know the whole county it's all that's the only place you can get a pattern it's like that yeah. doesn't matter because that deer goes 20 yards one way 20 yards the other you're not going to see them yep you're not going to know they're there but yeah, that's my biggest takeaway is that it's being able to glass and watch and see them. And then we started developing patterns, but then also like you're physically there for them. I thought it was very cool. Um, and then <laughs> back home, it's kind of in a tree stand. You're sitting there, you're yeah. waiting. And then opening morning, uh, you hear World War Three with rounds going all over. Pow, 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 pow. And those deer are just sprinting everywhere. Here, opening morning, I think what? We might have been the first to shoot, yeah. But we didn't. I maybe three or four gunshots throughout the whole day, and we had to actually stalk and go to the deer. Right. They didn't come to us. If I sit back there, the trail that I'm on, or the food plot, or wherever I'm at, they're kind of coming to me. Obviously, I'm not moving. I'm just sitting in a tree. But here we went to them, set up a tripod, took our time, and then worked our next shot. Those are those are my two biggest. I think. What about you? Right, for sure. I mean, that's it. You have the ability. You know, if you go on a great public land track out here, if you if you can find the animals and if they don't do what you've noticed for the last three days, improvise. You can a- adapt to your situation and hopefully make a good plan to put a stock on them, you know. Mm-hmm. So versus like Wisconsin, <laughs> you're stuck on one corner or the other. It's like, where? well, I'm not going to go do anything because I'll blow. Everybody's nervous about blowing their deer out of their piece of property into the neighbors because that buck you could be trying to let grow up on your acreage to watch it go to a mature deer all of a sudden you make one wrong step on your property that buck's gone and the neighbor's going to shoot it which is just fine because nobody owns the animals but it's still the it's a it's a mindset kind of in the midwest you know it's like that's my deer it's like no it's, it's, is, is it really though? Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's everybody's game and you never know what that deer is going to do, but you're going to try your damnedest to not let the animals leave your ground. Yeah. So. Yeah. You want to be the refuge. Right. Exactly. But you also want to be able to hunt, hunt deer from time to time. <laughs> it's tricky. Yep. It's tricky. Well, I think our meat is, uh, it's probably cooled off well enough at this point that we can start sending it through the grinder and, uh, get everything packaged and cleaned up and and uh yeah we'll we'll be done with with the meat processing and ready to move into meat moving yeah all in meat yeah exactly and i do some, appreciate everything you did for us though and some meat enjoying i guess see some tenderloins in <laughs> yeah. our future yeah yeah, yeah exactly you guys tonight. can have some tenderloins and some bone marrow over the fire tonight yep it's gonna be good on the far side of camp yeah uh, no thank you sincerely no, appreciate like, it this seriously is, this has been awesome and uh, this is something that, that I'm going to continue to do. And I might uh, might do it with elk in the future, might continue it with whitetail, but I want to do more of this because I do think it's really important for hunters to, to share their experience and knowledge with other people and, and move these skills around. We, we owe it to each other to do this. And, you know, if somebody can take a week... And they can learn how to camp and scout and shoot and hunt and field dress and process meat and transfer that meat home. Like that's that's pretty good. Yeah. Like that's a, that's a lot of skill. It took me a long time to learn how to do all this. And if I can pass parts of that on to somebody else over the course of a week, I want to do that. But also, the thing that we I think you've been harping on the most is taking a good shot. Yeah. That's the one thing that I think it took me a long time to get. And now that you got me confident to where I am now, that one shot all also like a nice, perfect shot, not just firing to fire anymore. Oh, you so. made a beautiful <laughs> shot. And that, that deer was dead before he hit the ground. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty nice, especially <laughs> coming out of archery season where, you know, it's like an investigation. Every time somebody shoots, it's like, okay, where was he standing? You know, Where's the last place you saw him? Yep. What was he running like? You know, could you see your arrow sticking out? It's like, no, we shoot, it dies 
right there. Like mm-hmm. freaking love rifle hunting so much. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me happy. <laughs> uh, okay, let's go grind some meat, boys. Sounds, Sounds good. good, brother. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you all very much for listening. I'm going to keep bringing you these stories from normal people just like you who have done extraordinary things. Everyone is an expert at something and they have interesting perspectives on life and work and the environment and all the things that we care about. I'm going to keep bringing that to you. And I want to thank you so much for making this show possible. I also want to thank Emily Bratcher for producing this show. She does a great job editing. Really appreciate her. I want to thank John Chatelain. He did the art for the Six Ranch podcast. And Celia, soon to be Harlander, uh, she digitized that so that we can get it out there on the internet for you. Also want to thank Justin Hay for writing this original music and the beautiful whistling that you're listening to right now. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Please keep listening to the show. Write me a review if you feel like it. And just keep doing your thing, and we'll all learn from this together. It's been fun, and, you know, we're, we're just getting started.